chapter 22, verse 20 says, now after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother. So he kind of ran out of ideas with those names. Um, Kemuel, the father of Aram. So he got a little bit more creative as he went on. Chesed, that's a good name. Um, especially with this respiratory thing I got going on. That's probably a great word to say repeatedly. Um, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And he's the one we really care about because he got this little parenthetical statement. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. So the first name that we recognize here uh, is Rebekah. So as we go on tonight, we're going to look at 23 and 24, and we're going to see how Isaac... Uh, meets Rebecca, his wife. So here at the end of 22, we see the connection and we, we see how the story transitions now. We're going to look at Isaac and Rebecca. Uh, and then it says, these eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maha. Those are awesome names. I like Ruma. That sounds like rumor. It's a pretty good name. Um, but what is this? Who are these people and why is it important? I guess just to give us some context, if you could put up Genesis uh, eleven twenty seven, the uh, Mo, uh, Abraham's father's name was Terah, and it says this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, who we look we we know all about Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. And in verse 29, it says, Then Abraham, or Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. So Haran died either at a young age uh, or definitely well before his own father, after giving birth to Lot and Milcah, uh, a daughter and a son, or a son and daughter. Um, and then Abram took Sarah as his wife, and Nahor was a single guy and took his uh, niece as his wife, which is kind of weird. But back in those days, it didn't matter. Uh, (laughs) The law had not been given yet to prohibit these types of uh, marriages. We know that Sarah was Abraham's half-sister, and we see that as it goes on throughout the beginning of Scripture, at least. Um, So this means that Milcah had a son named Bethuel, who then had Rebekah and... uh, and Laban, who we'll meet later on. So if you want to look at it, it's weird. Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. Nahor and Milcah had Bethuel, who then had Rebekah. So Rebekah is Abraham's niece and great niece, and Isaac's first cousin once removed and twice removed. So I did all that research for you. You should be thankful. <laughs> once I got into a big argument with somebody, like, what's the difference between like second cousins and first cousins once removed? So the just a quick little information so you feel like you got something out of tonight. I'm just kidding. Um, if uh, Chris and I were brothers and we had kids, those are first cousins, okay? If uh, Chris's grandchild, who doesn't exist yet, would then be my son's first cousin once removed, okay? But then the two grandchildren would be second cousins. Does that make sense? So if you're looking at it, you have brothers, cousins, first cousin once removed, second cousins, Okay? So that's how you got it there. So we have Isaac and Rebecca, and Isaac is Rebecca's first cousin once removed and second cousin once, and, and first cousin twice removed. Okay, so there's a big genealogy thing. It's really strange, but 
you're like, why did we talk about that? I'm not exactly sure why. I just found it interesting because of these weird relationships that were going on. So, sorry. Um, so let's move on into chapter 23, shall we? Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for her and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of your sight, out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Or your, your translation might say a mighty prince. Uh, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So if we look at this, Abraham is living in the land that God had promised to him at this time. Uh, they promised to him and to his descendants, but he did not take full possession of the land and he would not take full possession of the land. That was not part of what God had promised to Abraham. The land was something that he had promised to Abraham's descendants. And he even said at the beginning, and we looked at this, I believe in chapter 15, uh, that God was going to allow 400 years for the Amorites to repent and because their iniquity had not yet filled up. It's basically what God said. He was going to give the Amorites 400 years before Abraham's descendants would then take the land for themselves. So Abraham, believing afar off in something that God had promised to him, he wasn't really entering into that promise himself, but he was hoping and believing that God would take care of it for his descendants and the son of promise, obviously Isaac, who we've, we've, we're interest, introduced to in the last couple of weeks. So if you could put up uh, Hebrews 11, this is uh, the Hall of Faith. As we, We've been going into Hebrews a lot as we look at Genesis because there's a lot of insight into the original story that comes out in the book of Hebrews. It, it enlightens us into the, the types and the, the allegorical aspects of stories that are true but also have meaning for us now. So this is what it says in Hebrews. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off were assured of them embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And then on in verse 15. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And we saw, as we read through verses 1 through 9, Abraham is there. And you can imagine... The scene, Sarah has just died and there's all these people around. And he looks up, it says he want, he goes in and mourns for Sarah and weeps for her. And then he rises up from before his dead, it says. He's standing there and he looks and says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Like, who am I? That was the attitude. Even though he knew that God had promised that land to him, he was looking, as it says in Hebrews, for something better, something that was ahead of him, something that he wouldn't really see in his lifetime, but he would get to enter into with us when we enter into it by faith. And we'll look at a verse later on that says that. But he, that attitude, strangers and pilgrims, and I think that's really important for us in this world to realize that we're not here making a home for ourselves, that we're comfortable and we're excited that uh, we make a name for ourselves on this earth. 
We want to make a name for Jesus on this earth. And we want to live in such a way that we're in a tent, like the Bible talks about often and talks about how Abraham dwelt in tents and so on. So the next verse I want to look at is Romans chapter four. I think this verse is pretty cool too, because you would think that because Abraham, if you remember, God called him when he was 75, then 11 years went past. And then when he was 86, he decided I'm going to have Ishmael to fulfill God's promise because it doesn't seem like it's, it's happening. So maybe we, God wants us to do something to make it happen. And then 13 years goes by and God comes and says, no, I'm going to give you Isaac. So 25 years total from the time that God called Abraham to the time Isaac was born. And you could think that Abraham's faith would be shaken by that. Cause I know that if I feel like God's leading me to something and you might feel the same way, you feel like God's put something on your heart. You want it to happen yesterday, right? It's like, I feel called to do this. So everybody get out of my way so I can do it right now. And if you're blocking me, then you're sinning because you're keeping me from doing what God has called me to do. You know, and people start to get like, really like, God called me to do this very special thing and no one can stop me. And we start to run ahead of God, even though he has no intention for us to, to outrun his timing. Because sometimes we know that God is outside of time. He created it. He's looking at time from a different perspective. He's up here. So it's easy for me when those things happen, I won't speak for you guys, to start to have unbelief. And uh, that's really the biggest hurdle for Christians, I think, is our own unbelief. It's not the enemy, because the enemy is shielded from us by our faith in the spirit. That You know, the shield of faith is what we talked about in the armor of God. And that's what that means. It's your faith protects you from the fiery darts and all those doubts and all that unbelief that comes into your life. And Abraham, we kind of will say, hey, look what he did. He, he didn't listen to God and he did all this and that. But the Bible doesn't say that about Abraham. We kind of put that into the story because it's our interpretation of it. But the Bible says that Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And that is a verse that I read and I go, man, I want to be that. If the Bible says that we are children of Abraham by faith and that those who have faith are children of our father in the faith, which is Abraham. And he had unwavering belief that whatever God had promised, he was going to do it without doubting. That's crazy. And I need that. And I think that that's what we can take from this. When we look at Abraham, how he's he could have easily said to these people, this is my land. I don't have to pay for a cave to bury my wife. Get out of here. God gave it to me. But no, he's honoring that it, he did not want to do something outside of God's jurisdiction or, or outside of what God had planned for him, which I think is pretty cool. So if we move on in verse 10, now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. So Abraham had asked them, can you go get Ephron? I have a specific request for him because he has this cave that I really like and I want to bury my wife there. And he was sitting there among the Hittites and he answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I will give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it in the sight of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people. Um, sorry, of the land. But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it for me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 
400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So you're like, what's going on here? This is, this is an interesting picture into the ancient haggling or haggling. Is that how you said haggling or bartering? That is, uh, it actually still occurs a lot in many countries. It's the art of the deal. And, uh, Usually what happens is the person will make a, they'll lowball the guy and he'll say, that's ridiculous. And then he'll come in really high and then you kind of meet in the middle. And it's an, part of the process of having these agreements uh, and people get enjoyment out of it. I would just get frustrated personally. I'd be like, what is it? Is it $12? Is it $200? Just give me a price. I like, I'm like on eBay and I like buy it now. I don't want to do all that nonsense. I, if it doesn't have a buy it now selection, I just pass over it, you know. But Abraham, he's kind of in this mode. Because he's like, you know, I'm not going to get into all this bartering and all this stuff. I'm going to give you whatever the first price he says, I'm going to take it. And it's interesting because I think it shows Abraham's heart here. What's interesting is that he says, oh, who, you know, you can have it. I'll give it to you. And it says in the presence of all these people around. So it makes Ephron look really good and generous to Abraham. He's making a deal with him. The guy's wife just died. He's being real nice, right? But he had no intention of giving it to him for free. Um, and then when he comes in at 400 shekels of silver, we kind of, this was even before currency was involved. So a shekel of silver had to do with the weight of silver that Abraham had. Okay, so we're talking about actually weight of that material, silver. And instead of Abraham saying, 400, are you kidding? That place is a dump. I'm not paying 400 for that. He says, okay, 400. And everybody around's probably like, what? Why is he not arguing or debating or trying to get the price down? Because Abraham was not willing to sell his wife and her burial short in that way. And I think it's a, an interesting point is, you guys can attest to this, I know I have, but when we're called to bury the things that we love, it, it's costly. There are things that God has brought into our life for a time, and then he takes them away. You see Job, you know, he gives and he, he, gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And there's things that sometimes we lose and it's really costly. And God says, it's time to put that away and to move on to the next thing. And it's, it sounds harsh to talk about a person that way, but this scene is similar, and, and Chris talked about this last week, to Second Samuel 24, uh, where the, the plague is, is on Israel because of David's sin. And David goes to Aruna or Arana to buy the threshing floor. And the king, Aruna, he's being a really nice guy. No, but I will surely buy it from you. I'm sorry. He, he offered it to David for free, just like a similar situation. And David said, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And the attitude there is an attitude of true sacrificial worship. And, and offering to God. And we see that in Romans about uh, laying your life down as a living sacrifice. Uh, I don't know about you, but laying your life down, that's a pretty hefty sacrifice, is it not? Um, throwing 20 bucks in the offering, you know, helping an old lady across the street, it's not really going to take up a lot of your time or your life. But when God says, lay it down your entire life, we go, oh, whoa, that's a little extreme. Don't you, don't you think, God, like, He's like, well, I did it for you. And we go, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a saying when I used to uh, be at Calvary Philly, the, the slogan for the junior high ministry is, uh, 
it's called Crosswalk Junior High Ministry, and it's the, the slogan is, dying for, him was the, dying for me was the most that he could do. Living for him is the least that I can do. And uh, I think that's appropriate here. Uh, if we see uh, in Matthew 13, 45, again, this is Jesus speaking, so take notice. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And we see that recurring theme about giving everything up for that pearl of great price, as it were. And we know that this can be applied to Jesus being the pearl or, or being the, the one who gave it all up to buy the pearl, which was his chosen people out from the world. Because um, there's a parallel uh, parable here where it talks about he buys the whole field that the, per, where, that the treasure was in, and then he goes and gets and saves the treasure. So, you know, there's a lot of types there, but Jesus gave everything for us to have us. And the part, the part that I struggle with is when he says, I just want you. I want all of you. You know, don't do that anymore. Come and be with me. Don't spend your time doing this anymore. Come and spend time with me. And I, and I chafe at that. And I'm like, no, but I'm a free American. <laughs> I can do what I want. I can spend my Saturdays and my Sundays the way I choose. And it starts to get really like, we start to feel this like, ugh, this, this weird like chafing against who or what? It's God. And, you know, he said, come and take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And somehow we get it and we go, man, this yoke is so hard and heavy. But it's not actually, but it's, it's what we're holding on to that's dragging us down. And Abraham comes to a place where he loves Sarah. He loves Sarah. He's known Sarah. It's his half-sister. All her life, probably, he's 10 years older than she is. He spent his entire waking moments with this woman, loves her, uh, you know, and now he has to bury her. He's not going to shortchange that and get a free field and say, ooh, that was a good deal. Here you go. You know, and it, I just find it really interesting, and it, I might be harping on it a little too much, but there are, we see in the story of David as well, there's this this picture of when we offer to God, it should never be the leftovers, you know? We see the, the parable of the, or not the parable, the story of the widow and her two mites, and it says that all these men were coming and giving out of their abundance, it says, which is literally whatever they had left over. They had so much that whatever was spilling over, that's what they gave to God. They didn't get, but the widow and the two mites gave everything she had. And I'm not talking about money, and this isn't like a super tithe Tuesday night or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something God doesn't care about our money. He really doesn't. He cares about us, and he wants us. He didn't die for the sins of the world so he can get into our wallets. He didn't die for us because we had a big Swiss bank account that he was hoping to tap into for the kingdom of God. That's not what it is. He wants us. Can you believe that? I would look, I would sometimes be like, I'd rather have the money if he's looking at me. You know what I mean? I'm like, but he wants us. He wants all of us. He wants us to put aside the things that are taking our eyes off of him to bury those things that are, and it's going to come at a cost. And I think that's important to realize. Uh, just another verse, Luke 14, 28. Um, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You know, you see buildings everywhere. 
where they, the money dries up and there's half-finished developments and all this stuff. And you're like, when are they going to do something with that, you know? Uh, I just I always feel that I used to feel that way when I go to Calvary Central Bucks and you come into Chalfont and there's a burned out car wash on one end and then on the other end it's all these empty buildings and you're like is somebody going to do something with this <laughs> you know like did they not realize that this was an eyesore and that no one wants to drive into this town because they get that as their hello and the other thing is their goodbye you know no offense to Chalfont you know I love Calvary Central Bucks and everything but I mean that that area it's like why doesn't somebody do something with it right and Jesus applies that to our walk with him, our discipleship. And uh, he says in, in verse 33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Um, I'll let that statement say what all it says, because that, that hurts enough, I think, to read. <laughs> um, but I just I find it interesting because we see these things here, and that's why I took a moment to talk about that. The idea that Abraham was willing to pay an exorbitant price that was nowhere near what that cave actually was worth for the sake of the person that he loved and honoring them, even in their death, which is, I think, a cool picture. So if we go on in verse 17, so the field of Ephron is Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. And if you notice there, it says it twice, that it was given to Abraham as property, I believe. And then, uh, it's interesting because we talked about it already that he was a sojourner. He was dwelling in the land, but in tents. He had no inheritance as of yet. It was for his descendants to inherit 400 years from then. So if you look at it, the only land that Abraham ever really possessed was the place where he buried his wife. I think to find that really interesting. I, you know, I don't have a lot of big theological points for that, but I just find it interesting that he buried his wife there. He was willing to... to buy that land to honor her. And he didn't do anything else. He didn't say, oh, well, while I'm at it, I'll get this and I'll, I'll get this and I'll build a home here and I'll do that. He left it, he, he bought that land for her and he moved on and he left it behind. And I find that really interesting. Uh, in Hebrews 11.9 says, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Even though it was the land that had been promised to him, he had a, the mindset that he was on his way to his real home dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Just that, that picture, a city that has foundations and the builder and maker is God. Isn't that cool? I just picture God, he's, you know, he's got a hard hat on, but it's not hard work for him. He's just like, boom, there's the city, foundations, everything. You know, like Abraham, how did he know that? How did he see that? It was it's amazing what faith can bring and what type of revelation uh, God will give concerning his promises to his saints. Because faith is how he was able to say, um, it's not for me yet. It's for my children. It's not for me to set up time here. You know, similar like with David in the temple. It wasn't for him to build it, but he stored up stuff so that his son could build it because God had called Solomon to build the temple. Faith gives us prophetic insight something that's future happening, we know, you know what? It's not for me to take hold of that yet. 
but I'm going to press on to it. I'm going to press into it. And we see that with Paul. He talks about that in Philippians where he says, I haven't already attained it, but I forget what is behind and I press on to the mark of the upward call of God. And you see that over and over again with the saints in scripture. It's this idea of not back here. We're going this way. And it's, there's not a constant turning back, you know? And we see that with Abraham here, which is really cool. So let's um, take a look at this Hebron. The Bible is very specific and explicit that this is Hebron. Even though they're calling it by other things, Hebron. You know, I don't know if your Bible has it in parentheses, what have you. You know, it says Machpelah, Mamre. It calls it a bunch of different places, Canaan. And it says, it's Hebron, by the way. Why does the Bible make such a point of it being Hebron? Let's take a second to look at Hebron. What is the significance of this place? It was the favorite home, favorite home of Abraham. He pitched his tent here under the Oaks of Mamre, by which name it came afterwards to be known. And Sarah died here. She was buried here. Isaac and Ishmael actually bury Abraham here. We'll look at that next week. So Abraham, even though he went on and had another wife and, and had other wives and stuff, he is buried with his wife, Sarah. And then... Isaac and Rebekah are both buried here in Hebron. Jacob buries Leah here. Joseph buries Jacob in Hebron. And this was the place that Joseph told his descendants to bury him, taking his bones with them when they came into the promised land. So Hebron, there's a significance here. Just like when we looked at Mount Moriah last week. These locations, I think we kind of forget. We separate the Old Testament, the New Testament. We're like, this is a totally other country we're talking about here. And then Jesus, you know, like we... It's all in the same geographical location. These areas, the promised land and Jerusalem and Mount Moriah, it's all within the same radius, I guess. And I find it really interesting that Jacob buries Leah here. Not Rachel, because everybody thinks about Jacob and Rachel, right? That's the, that was the hot romance. Leah was like, eh, whatever. <laughs> you know, poor Leah, man. She gets such a tough time in scripture. But if you could put up Genesis 35, 23... I think there's some significance in the fact that he buries Leah here and not Rachel. Can you show me, can you somebody shout out whose name is in there that stands out? Can you see it? It's third from the last one, I think. With a J. Judah, right? So Leah was the mother of Judah. Do we know who came from Judah? Jesus did, right? That's pretty cool, I think. Because, you know, and we'll talk about it, Jacob had four different wives and had 12 kids through those four wives, but... Leah gets buried here in Hebron, and Leah happens to be one of the four women who gives birth to Judah, which is the line that follows um, the lineage of of Christ, which I think is really cool. Um, Hebron, if we go on outside of the the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, when, when they're actually stepping into the promised land, Hebron is taken by Joshua. They defeat the, the area, they drive out all the people, and they give it to Caleb. If you guys know this story, we'll, we'll, we're going to take a look at it. Turn to Joshua 14, if you don't mind. But um, while you're doing that, I'll read this verse, Numbers 14, 24. Joshua and Caleb, if you're familiar with the story, when they go into, they're going in to spy the promised land, and they send in 12 guys, Joshua and Caleb come back and say, man, this promised land is awesome. It's got grapes the size of my head. It's awesome. And then the 10 guys come back and go, yeah, that's really cool, but we're like grasshoppers in the sight of these giants that are there. The Anakim are there, the Nephilim, this, this, him, this, that, him, you know, they're saying, oh, it's too much. We can't do it. Even though God had said, this is the land that I've promised to you through your father, Jacob, your father, Isaac, and your father, Abraham. They, the 10 outweighed the two. 
But because Caleb and Joshua were faithful, they were able to inherit the promised land and all those other people had to die. That's why they started wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, because they did not believe in the promise. They didn't persevere through the promise by faith. So in Joshua, I'm sorry, if you could put up uh, numbers 14, but my servant Caleb, this is God speaking because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully. I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. Isn't that weird? Because he has a different spirit in him. I just find that really interesting because this early in the Bible, we don't really hear a lot about the Holy Spirit. We hear about it coming upon people and judges like Samson and it comes upon him and he gets really strong and all that stuff. But it says he has a different spirit in him. And I find that really cool. I think that's a foreshadowing of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Caleb is a, is a great guy. And what's cool about Caleb, he was a descendant of Esau. He wasn't even an Israelite, which is pretty cool because he is a picture of faith in God apart from genealogy, apart from heritage, apart from being a Jew. He had faith in the God of Israel, even though he was a descendant of Esau, which is pretty cool as well. So I'll just read this real quick. Joshua um, chapter 14. This is after they're cleaning out, they're cleaning house. And it says in verse six, then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite said to him, you know that the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have followed wholly the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since that time. 45 years he had to wait that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, check this out. I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. 85-year-old guy fighting in battles. They're cleaning house. He's 85 and says, I'm as strong today as I was when I was 40. All these young whippersnappers that think they're strong, arm wrestle right now. Caleb is the man. I always think that, um, and this is just my own personal opinion, Churches sometimes do a disservice. What they do is they take the uh, the more senior people in the church and they put them in the senior ministry or the over 50s ministry or something like that. I think there should be a Caleb ministry. There should be a ministry where the the older folks and the more senior saints are the ones that are driving the ministry that's happening. Sometimes, and it's our society really, is that we push the older uh, generation out because they don't know what Twitter is. Well, you know what? I'm glad they don't know what Twitter is because Twitter's dumb. Sorry, I offended everybody. <laughs> everybody gets gets up and leaves. And, uh, but you know what I'm saying, though? Like sometimes we, as people get older, the, the young hip kid in us wants to go, eh. Caleb is like, I'm 85 years old and I'll take on any one of you. He's like a grumpy old man, but he's a godly grumpy old man. I love it, though. This attitude, though, is important when we think about the promises of God because Caleb believed 45 years before this, he was saying this, that God was going to fulfill his promise to him. 45 years went by. Not only was he as strong as ever, God was faithful to fulfill his promise. Caleb knew that by the fact that he was still alive. 
Otherwise, he would have been dead if God wasn't going to fulfill that promise, just like Abraham did with Isaac. He knew that if God was going to raise Isaac from the dead, he was going to do it because he promised that his seed would come through Isaac, and Isaac had not had any children yet. These types of promises, and and I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else, it's we look right here. This is all we see. And when this doesn't make sense, we go, ah, and I, you know, I kick, Chris said, kick the dog at home. You know, you get mad, you throw your books down and everybody's just upset. Caleb said, hey, it's going to take 45 years. I'm going to be as strong in 45 years as I was now so that I can enjoy it to the fullest. That is a cool attitude to have. And I think it's a gr- this great verse in Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And I think Caleb can be lumped right into there. He's not sluggish. He's not like, oh, my hip's hurting. Uh, I don't think I can kill those giants in Hebron. Oh, well, I guess God's promises failed me. Nope. God's promises are true today. His promises are yes and amen. And Caleb's going to pursue those promises to the very end of himself. And I think that's a challenge to me and to you and to whoever wants to hear it, that there are promises in God's word and there are promises that he's given to you. And it's so easy to be like that verse in Romans 4 and waver in unbelief. But God wants us to be like our father Abraham and not waver when we're not seeing those things fulfilled in, in the immediate you know, present, which is it's hard for us because we live in a generation that if you wait in the drive-thru for two minutes, you're calling for the manager. You know, like, we want everything now. Like, I think it's hilarious. Uh, microwave popcorn used to take five minutes. Now it takes like a minute and a half. And I didn't know that it had changed, so I put it on for five minutes, and the whole thing, like, blew up. I was like, I remember when it used to be five minutes. And I'm not that old. It used to be five minutes to put microwave. Now it's, psh, we can't wait five minutes. That's ridiculous. And there's a stand-up comedian that I love, and he talks about, we have microwave instructions for Pop-Tarts, it's actually, if you go home and have Pop-Tarts, it says microwave on high for three seconds. And that's the actual instructions. Like, you, it, you don't have enough time to put it in the toaster and let it pop a minute later. You know, that's the society that we live in. It's now, now, now. So when God is outside of time and he says something or speaks something to our heart and he puts a desire in our heart, it's not necessarily fully realized even yet. He just wants us to have that desire because we'll start to live our life based on that. And the decisions that we make will be reflecting of the promise that God had given us. Even if it takes years, he will ultimately bring it to pass in our life. And I think that's really cool. Um, another cool thing about Hebron is it was a city of refuge. What they used to do, um, you know, when they instituted the law, they would, if someone accidentally killed somebody, they could flee to a city of refuge and they would be protected in that city of refuge from the avenger of blood, as they're called, the per, you know the family member of the person who was the victim had the right to then go seek vengeance on the person who had killed their family member, even if it had been accidental, unless they were in this city of refuge. So it says, so the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. The congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there, and notice this, until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. So he had to stay in that city of refuge until whoever was the high priest at the time that this incident happened died, and then he could go back. He was no longer under the guilt of that accidental death or manslaughter. If you put that verse with the next verses that I have, Hebrews 6, again, we're in Hebrews 6 all night. Thus God, determining to know 
to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel. And that's a big word. It just basically means it's never going to change, I think. Confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So when you look in those verses, you see, and when he talks about that, the two immutable things that has to do with the covenant that God made with Abraham, which we looked at a few weeks ago, where he crossed through the parts of the animal himself. A covenant was usually between two parties. God made the covenant between himself only because God will not break it. Okay. And when we see that we we flee to God for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And what is that hope? That is the anchor of our soul. It says to be, Jesus is the forerunner. He went ahead of us and he is our high priest. So when you look at that verse in Numbers where it says that you flee to the city of refuge and then the high priest dies, Jesus is the high priest. He offered himself for us and we are set free. We don't have to flee to a city of refuge for protection. We're set free. We are no longer held captive by the deed that we did accidentally or intentionally. And I find that the more I read the Bible, the more I see that there's one consistent theme throughout it. That's why I always encourage people If you feel the urge to stop where you are because the paragraph ended, power through. Because the Bible is a continuous story, and we get caught up in chapter breaks and stuff sometimes. And I think it's really important that we continue to read. So let's go through chapter 24 real briefly. It tells the story of Isaac and Rebekah. It's a lot of verses. I'm not going to read them all because half the chapter is Abraham's servant telling some new people, what happened in the first half of the chapter. He just almost word for word. So we're just going to summarize that section. But uh, Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. So Abraham, as we look at this, Isaac and Rebecca, the, this picture is a remarkable uh, foreshadowing of the union between Jesus and the church. And there's a couple things that I just want to point out at the beginning so I don't forget to do at the end. In this chapter, we'll see a father that desires a bride for his son. We'll also see a son that was accounted as dead and then raised from the dead. A nameless servant is sent forth to get the bride for the son. The servant's name is actually Eleazar. We saw him in chapter 15, where before Isaac was born and Abraham was afraid that Eleazar was going to be, his, going to be able to inherit his wealth. So that means God of help or helper, which is another name for the Holy Spirit as well. The lovely bride is divinely met, chosen and called, and then lavished with gifts. She's entrusted to the care of the servant until she meets the bridegroom. So those are some really cool pictures of Jesus in the church and the way the Holy Spirit works to get the bride, to collect the bride. We sang it tonight about the bride will come together and we'll sing that you're beautiful. And uh, I just find that really cool. And, And keep these things in mind as we read through this. 
in verse five, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to show to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Again, he's not looking back. When God called him out of that land, he said, I don't even want you to take my son back there. We're done. We're moving on. And he hasn't put his hand under his thigh. That was a way that they would swear an oath. It's a weird thing that they did, but you'll see it again later on in Genesis where uh, Jacob does the same thing. Um, the Lord, in verse 7, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be set free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So he warns him a second time. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. It's not hot. It's getting cool. They're going to be doing a lot of physical labor, going down into the well and getting the water up. So they would come at the the end of the day. Also, the water would not get hot from the sun because they would be collecting it for days at a time. So they would go at the in the evening. It says in verse 12, And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. That's a pretty lengthy prayer. We don't really see a lot of long prayers in the Bible, but it's really important to point out that he didn't even get into the city yet and he's praying. He's like, I can't trust myself to make this decision. This is too huge. This is my master we're talking about. This is his son of promise. And the woman, you know, Jezebel wasn't around yet, but I don't want to get a Jezebel. I don't want to get a Delilah and mess up and then I'm out of here. He's, he's, he walks into the city and he's like, you know what? Before I go another step, God help me. <laughs> I know my name is God help, but you have to help me. <laughs> um, and then what a great prayer. He says, show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And, and I, I think it's really interesting to see the behavior of the people in Abraham's cohort, I guess. They see how God and Abraham interact and they're in reverence and all of that. And I believe Abraham, uh, Eleazar was affected in such a way that he had faith in God as well. He's saying that it's the God of Abraham, but he's, it's his God too. And my, that's my personal conviction. And it says in verse 15, before he had finished speaking, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Aren't you glad we did that whole graph thing? We know exactly who this is, right? <laughs> You're like, what are you talking about? Um, I just, I tried to find, uh, find out how many times in the Bible it says before he had finished speaking that God did something. And there were too many. I just was like, this isn't even worth it. But do the, do the, in the, um, the research. I found one verse that I thought was, cool from Isaiah. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. And that's God speaking. But it's amazing. There's so many times when someone's praying to God and it says, while they were still speaking, something happened. They didn't even have to finish the prayer, the audible words, because it's the heart. that we, That's how we pray. And Chris was talking about that on Sunday, about 
the Spirit intercedes for us even when we don't know what to say. You know, and that's, that's really comforting because God, it's not like we need to call the operator and get a dial tone out to God. You know, like, oh wait, uh, God doesn't drop calls. You know, it's amazing. The Holy Spirit is there to connect us. He's inside of us so that we can speak to God so that even though we're not audibly saying something or we're not done, it's, the prayer is already there and the answer is already on its way, which is amazing. Um, and it says in verse 16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. This girl must have been pretty buff, too. She's like booking it. Um, it says she was beautiful in form and appearance, right? So she's probably like a little diesel going on. Um, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had pros- prospered his journey or not. This is funny. Like you show, It shows the humanness of this servant. Like everything he asked God to do, God is doing. And he's like still waiting. Like, is this you, God? <laughs> you know, like we get like that. Like God's like, here she is. There's probably like a halo around her and there's music playing. Who's that lady? You know, and, and Eliezer is like, wait, maybe this is a trap. Maybe this isn't God. And he's like, God's like, okay, I'll give you a little bit more assurance here. Uh, and in verse 22, it says, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring or your, your translation may say a nose ring. So they're okay, people. If, anybody, if your mom gives you a hard time about a nose ring, you can just point them right to Genesis chapter 24. I'm just kidding. Um, and two bracelets for her arms, weighing 10 gold shekels, and said, please, t-. so she must have been buff because they're 10 gold shekels bracelets. She's probably like, Rah. sorry. Um, and he said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord. And if your Bible has capital L, capital O, R, D, that's blessed be Yahweh. That's God's name. The God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. What's really interesting is that we don't see a lot of descriptions of physical appearance in the Bible. Uh, Sarah, we heard about it. We've seen it a lot so far, but as we go on, we don't see it nearly as much. Most of the mentions are actually in the book of Genesis. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Joseph, Saul, which is in uh, 1 Samuel, David, Tamar, Abigail, both are in, they're all in First and Second Samuel, Bathsheba, Vashti and Esther. Those were the ones that I found about people being attractive. And I think it's important that we don't make too much of that. And God doesn't make too much of it because it's not necessary. It's only mentioned when it facilitates the story, which I find really interesting. Like it's never like, oh, by the way, they were really handsome. Something in the story always points back to why they mentioned that they were attractive. One, this is God's provision for his son, Isaac. He gives the best to him. But then we also see here, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks at the heart. And we see also God doesn't make much of outward appearance in eternity because if you skip ahead, Don, sorry, to uh, Isaiah 52, 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. And then the next verse in, in Isaiah. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Ground. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And you're like, well, why would they go out of their way to mention that the Messiah was not attractive or not handsome? Obviously, it's talking, there's there part of it that's talking about the actual beating of Christ on the cross and how he was marred beyond human recognition. But also, I think it facilitates the story in that Christ did not come on the earth as a powerful, ruler, handsome, six-foot-six guy, okay? He came as a carpenter, and he was probably like 5'9", or however tall those people, 5'6", maybe. Those people uh, in that part of the world, they're not as tall as some other uh, nationalities. There was nothing about Jesus that made him stand out, because that was important to the story, in that what drew people to him was his love, and was his message, and was the fact that he revealed God's nature to them. And that's, that's a, just a side note to think about. So when we, get, we look at people's appearance, we don't want to get too caught up in it. Um, and let's just finish. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. We know about Laban, or we'll learn about him if you don't already know. Uh, Laban ran out toward the man to the spring, and check this out. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, he's like, whoa, dollar signs. And Heard the words of Rebecca, his sister. Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. So Laban, if you know anything about him, he is a shyster. Uh, we'll see him in a couple weeks. But he's the one that has Jacob work for seven years. And he's like, oh, you thought you were going to get Rachel? Sorry about that. Work for me another seven years. So Laban's always looking to get a little something. When he runs out, he sees the ring and the bracelets. He's like, whoa, shiny, bling. Hey, buddy, come on in. We got plenty of room for you. Do you got any more of that stuff? You know, it's just really interesting. You start to see people's character revealed even when they're introduced in the story. In verse 31, I'm sorry, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. And now for the next 15 verses or so, he's going to, or 10 verses, he's going to just restate the story we just talked about. So we're going to skip down to verse 49. Uh, And it's word for word, so we're not really missing anything. So after he tells this whole story about how he went and he he swore to his father or, or his master Abraham, and this girl came out, she fit the description. He says in verse 49, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. 
When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us for a while. So we start to see a little tension here. They're like, no, no, we're not ready. At least 10 days, then she may go. Some people might do that with you. Like, it's great that God's telling you to do something, but maybe you need to kind of just sit on the back burner for a while and just like rest and, and, and stay here. Like you're moving too fast and they start to try to rebuke you, but they're not actually in tune with what the Spirit's trying to do in your life. And he says, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. It's obvious that God has opened this door. I'm not going to let anybody hinder me from going through it. Even if it seems like a nice logical argument for why I shouldn't. You know, there are people that abandon scholarships and go full-time in the mission field because God's called them to do that. And other people are going to tell you that's irrational. That's not what God would want you to do because God's very reasonable, you know? And, and then you go, well, maybe, they were, maybe they're right. Even though God has opened all these doors and pointed all these arrows, maybe I'll listen to this guy over here. Eliezer is smarter than that. He says, nope, don't hold me back. God has prospered my way. It's my way or the highway or God's way or the highway. <clears throat> they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. So they're going to ask Rebecca. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. That's awesome. <laughs> She's just like, yep, sounds great. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. And may your offspring possess, possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebecca and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. You can see this really just tells itself, this story. Now in verse 62, it says, now Isaac. And what's interesting to know is that that's the first mention of Isaac since uh, Genesis 22, which is where Isaac was offered to the Lord as a sacrifice. And we talked about how it's really interesting. We have a type of the crucifixion in Genesis 22. We have a burial in Genesis 23. And then the next time we see Isaac, who's a type of Christ, it's when the bride is being brought to him, which is really cool. He had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. That's a great time. I don't know if you've ever walked out at night and looked up at the stars and stuff. That's a great time to meditate for sure. He lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And a quick point I want to make about this is that the word dismounted is nafal, which means to fall. So it literally means she fell off her camel when she saw Isaac. You know, the Bible makes it like nice, and the translators try to be like, well, what it meant was that she dismounted gracefully. I don't think so. I think she saw Isaac, and Isaac was the son of promise, so he was probably good-looking, even though it just doesn't say he is. And she was like, boom, right off the camel. And it says, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? I think she was like, who is that man? No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> I just, you got to put it in there. It's real life. This is real people we're talking about. That's, if we read it like this, who is that man? Then we miss a lot of what God has put into the scripture, I think. So she covers herself because she's a, she's a virgin. She's not married. She's not supposed to have her, herself uncovered before another man. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And they courted for a while, and they got the permission of the parents, and yada, 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 and they Facebook chatted. 
and then she became his wife. No. <laughs> in the Bible, they just they got right down to business. There wasn't all this like, well, what's your sign? And what's your like favorite ice cream flavor? Uh-oh, Rocky Road, maybe we shouldn't get married, you know? It seemed right. They got married. They were two godly people. It worked out. <laughs> um, it's cool, though. It says she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So we bring it full circle. And we'll learn in chapter 25 that Isaac doesn't get married till he's 40, and Sarah died when he was 37. So for three years, he was grieving the loss of his mother. That was the most important woman in his life up to that point. And uh, he was co- finally comforted from that morning uh, when Rebecca came into his, uh, into his life. And uh, there's a lot of types about Rebecca in the church, but I think it's pretty clear. We, we talked about it. But I just would like to throw a couple verses up, uh, if you don't mind. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. It says, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And that is the church, the purification, the sanctification that God accomplished through the death of his son and the resurrection. It's being done. And Paul is saying, you know what? It's my job as a servant of God, like Eleazar, to bring that chaste virgin to Christ, to meet him. And there's another cool verse. It says in... Uh, Isaiah 62, 5, for as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's really cool, I think. And then in Revelation 19, this is the future. This is when we saw, said that they were looking afar off and believing in the promises. This is what they're talking about. We haven't even seen it yet. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in the fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. What is that righteous acts of the saints? Isaiah 61, 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And then the invitation for anyone is Revelation twenty two seventeen says, And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. You know, he met Rebecca at a well. And as we'll see next week in chapters 25 and 26, Isaac is a man who is, he digs wells. That's what we know about Isaac. He's always digging wells, which is really interesting when we see Isaac as a type of Christ, because we know that Jesus said in John 7, anyone who thirsts, come to me and drink, and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit, he would give it back to him. So I find these, these types really cool, and I love that. It says, if you're thirsty, if there's something that you feel like you need to quench your thirst on, quench it on Christ quench it with the the life-giving water that he offers. And then we'll see next week about the idea of that digging that well, getting that fresh living water, not the stagnant stuff that sits around, but but what God has to offer us so that we won't thirst for what the world offers, which is a cheap imitation. So let's pray 